This is the download edition of World Business Report on Monday the 13th of April. I'm Susanna Streeter. The heiress of fragrance empire Nina Ricci is jailed for tax evasion. Arlette Ricci, who has always denied the accusations against her, will have to make a choice. Either she decides to let go because of her age and tiredness, or she continues to fight. Could it be the end of the road for the CEO of one of the world's largest car makers? In the constellation that's basically running Volkswagen Group with uh, Piech and Winterkorn being close confidence and providing strong leadership. Okay. If that falls apart, and it seems to be falling apart right now, it would definitely uh, destabilise the company. And making it personal, we meet the new robots programme to take care of us. Jibo is really about supporting the family, supporting those who help care for the family. And I think this high-touch, high-tech technology is much better adapted and better able to address those needs. That's all coming up. She's the most high-profile person to be convicted for using an HSBC Swiss account to dodge tax. Nina Ricci's granddaughter, Arlette Ricci, the heiress to the French perfume and fashion empire, was jailed today after being found guilty of tax evasion and money laundering. A court in Paris sentenced her to a year in prison and she was ordered to pay heavy fines and back taxes for hiding millions of euros in the bank accounts in Switzerland. The court also confiscated properties in Paris and Corsica, estimated to be worth around €4 million. Around 50 other French nationals are also facing trial for evading tax by using accounts held by HSBC's private banking arm in Switzerland. Her lawyer, Jean-Marc Fadida, said she would need to decide whether to appeal. Arlette Ritchie, who has always denied the accusations against her, will have to make a choice. Either she decides to let go because of her age and tiredness, or she continues to fight. Fight in the name of her children, but also for those who believe a judicial system working under such levels of pressure from the accusation cannot work with clarity and remain unquestionable. Well, Michael Stoddart is Paris correspondent for the Financial Times, and he told me more about the case. Well, the courts talked about a determined willingness for more than 20 years to hide uh, money left to her in her father's Swiss bank account. Certainly seems as though this was a family affair because her daughter was found guilty too, wasn't she? Yes, the daughter was given an eight-month suspended sentence as well. Um, not nearly as bad as uh, the uh, the mother, but still um, quite a tough, quite a tough sentence. Now, the revelations about the secret Swiss bank accounts were made public in February by a whistleblower. The French prosecutors must have acted pretty quickly, mustn't they? It's fifty French nationals or to face trial, aren't they? Or did they know in advance of the whistleblowing? Well, they actually had all this information back in 2010, the so-called Lagardère list. Um, so they've had a long time to prepare these these cases, and uh, she was her her house was raided back in uh, 2010. The story early in February was really just an analysis of information that the at least the French tax authorities already had. And do you think that analysis concentrated mine somewhat? Absolutely. I mean, I think the level of pressure from the media really made everyone jump up and take notice of this issue that I think people hoped had sort of died away slightly, uh, particularly in the UK, where there were lots of allegations about to what extent the, you know, they could have got the information from the French. There was a debate about that at the time. 
So which other countries have mounted prosecutions following the whistleblowing? So far it's been France, Belgium and Switzerland have been the main ones, um, notably not the UK. And what have HSBC said about um, all of these allegations and about what was actually taking place at the Swiss arm? Um, Well, they've been relatively cagey, waiting to refer things to their lawyers. They, I mean, notably, they were put under investigation or mise en examen and given a large uh, bail. uh, Had to pay a billion in bail by the French last week. And they said that this was completely unreasonable and unprecedented unprecedented and denied the charges. And that was Michael Stoddart, Paris correspondent for the Financial Times. Ladies and gentlemen, 2015 will be a year full of new models, new technologies and also new headlines. Well, that was the Volkswagen CEO, Martin Winterkorn, speaking in January. He may have predicted new headlines, but possibly not ones concerning himself and the company's chairman, Ferdinand Piech. But the trouble at the top of Volkswagen has revved up a gear. On Friday, the chairman, Mr Piech, said he had no confidence in Martin Winterkorn as chief executive, criticising his management style. Today, other members of the board waded in to support the maligued CEO, including Wolfgang Porsche, who heads up Porsche SC Holding Company, which controls 51% of VW stock. The row was being viewed as destabilising for Europe's largest car manufacturer at a time when it's in the middle of a multi-billion and euro cost-cutting drive to boost profitability. Christoph Rowald specialises in covering VW business for Bloomberg. I asked him just how serious the leadership crisis was. The rift uh, seems to be very substantial. The comments from Chairman Piech uh, suggest that there has been like a larger strategic issue behind the scenes that has been discussed. There seems to be like a bigger problem or a bigger issue that uh, divides the CEO and the chairman at the moment. So it's not just a clash of personalities, it's really the strategic direction of the business. I think it's probably a mix of both. I mean, both are very senior executive with a long and successful track record on senior management positions within the group. But that alone, I don't think, would be uh, the reason, as both executives know each other very well for more than three decades and have always been on very good terms. There seems to be like a bigger strategic disagreement about how to position the Volkswagen Group. But the supporters of the chief executive, Mr. Winterkorn, have defended his record, saying he's boosted sales and profit and expanded Volkswagen's global footprint. With such a good record then, why this lack of support for him? That is really the big question at the moment. I mean, the key shareholders and supervisory board members have thrown their support behind Winterkorn because of his strong results and, and, the, and the successful expansion that Volkswagen has seen over the last few years. The big question is why this harsh reaction from Chairman Piech. And yeah, that's, I think, that what everybody's trying to figure out now, what actually triggered these remarks. Given this reaction from the chairman, do you think the CEO will go? It's difficult to say right now, obviously, because the story really developed over the weekend and with the key shareholders and and supervisory board members uh, positioning themselves. I personally would be surprised if Winterkorn doesn't fulfill his contract, which expires at the end of next year. But it's it's difficult to rule anything out at this stage. Absolutely. Now, the AGM is on May the 5th. So the next few weeks is really going to be crucial. 
Yeah, the next few weeks will be crucial because during the preparation for the AGM and for the supervisory board meeting, which will be just before the AGM takes place on May the 5th, all sorts of committees will be meeting involved to prepare the AGM. And there's a pretty good chance that they will meet during this preparation process and they will definitely meet at the AGM. And uh, yeah, so we might see some sort of showdown possibly at the uh, shareholder meeting in Hanover on May the 5th. And this has come at quite a tricky time for the business. Uh, VW is trying to cut billions of euros of cost to try and boost profitability. It's core division and also it's trying to forge that long-planned alliance of truck brands and revive operations in the United States. There's a, there's a lot on the table at the moment, isn't there? There is. You mentioned some of the operational issues and there's also a big industry trend toward connected vehicles, electric vehicles. It's sort of really like a tectonic shift for many automakers and there would be lots of work at hand for, for Volkswagen senior management, even without this uh, management turmoil. And certainly investors don't like uncertainty, do they? Share prices dropped since this turmoil at the top was unveiled. Yeah, I think this, especially in the constellation that's basically running Volkswagen Group now, has made the company rather successful with uh, Piech and Winterkorn being close confidence and providing strong leadership okay. atop the, the, the company. And if that falls apart, and it seems to be falling apart right now, it would definitely uh, destabilize the company. And that uh, report on uh, Volkswagen uh, there and that... Um, was Christoph Rowald, who specialises in covering VW business for Bloomberg. You're listening to World Business Report from the BBC World Service. Still to come, Italian pizza chefs are threatening to sue McDonald's, but has Italy's culinary passion all gone too far? Most of their food is just literally pasta or pizza or tomato, and they get really protective about that. So it doesn't surprise me that there's been a big outrage. Time now for a look at how the financial markets have been faring. And Jeremy Batstone Carr from Charles Stanley is here. Hello there, Jeremy. Hiya. So we've had some pretty disappointing export figures from China today. How did they affect the markets? Uh, not very well. Uh, China has a reputation for accentuating the positive when it comes to its economic data. But there was no way to turn this data into good news. Exports in March fell by 15% year-on-year, significantly worse than expected. And why that matters is it increases doubts about the health of the global economy. In particular, it raises questions in relation to demand. Now, there's a lot of discussion about supply-side weakness, but this is yet another piece of evidence in the jigsaw that suggests that Globally, demand remains extremely weak. If nobody is buying Chinese products, then who's buying whose products? Absolutely. And another uh, worrying trend uh, concerns inflation. And we've got a raft of inflation figures out this week. Pretty important readings, aren't they? Because the spectre of deflation hovers over some economies. Yes, that's right. Uh, Obviously, headline inflation has been driven lower in large part by the collapse in the crude oil price over the course of the past nine months or so. But uh, And so underlying inflation has held up, that's wage growth, etc. But there is just some evidence now that with that weak demand, with that ex-supply, with industrial metals prices, of course, still under pressure because of the weakness of the Chinese economy, in the next few months... Weak, already weak inflation data might get weaker yet. And sterling's also been pretty weak today. Sterling's been very weak too. Uh, some suggestion that finally concerns over the possibility of a hung parliament in the UK, no overall control for any of the major parties, might potentially be 
destabilising global investors. So the pound fell and mining stocks fell, which meant that the UK didn't have a particularly good day stock market-wise. OK, Jeremy Batstone-Cart, thank you very much for that update. And let me give you some of the latest numbers from the financial markets now. The FTSE 100 index at the close was down 25 at 7,064. And in New York a short time ago, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was up 0.02% at 18,060. Now, the robotic era is getting personal. They're slowly moving into our homes in the guise of vacuum cleaners or even floor scrubbers, often a very welcome addition to frantic family life. But what's the business case for robot cars that can chauffeur you autonomously and desktop robots that can be your personal assistant? Will they be job killers or job creators? Alison Van Diglen reports from Silicon Valley, California, where two pioneers recently described a brave new world full of robots. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Tesla CEO, founder, Elon Musk. In the distant future, I think it's people may outlaw driving cars because it's too dangerous. Like, you, you can't have a person driving a two-ton death machine. <laughs> That's Elon Musk, the CEO of electric car maker Tesla Motors, speaking at a recent Silicon Valley tech conference. He helped revolutionize the world of electric vehicles by creating a sexy, high-performance car that left the golf cart era in the dust. Now he's joined the charge in autonomous driving led by Google and claims that taking a self-driving car will soon be as everyday as using an elevator. But are you ready to step into a robot car? You'll be able to tell your car, like, take me home, go here, go there, anything, and it'll just do it at an order of magnitude safer than a person. Because uh, it's just going to be the, the default thing, um, and it could save a lot of lives. Although you might grimace at the thought of relinquishing control, for Musk... Google and several major car manufacturers, the business case for autonomous cars is a no-brainer. They say it could save $400 billion a year in accident-related expenses. Researchers at Columbia University found that a shared, driverless fleet of cars could reduce personal travel costs by 80%. But will robotic cars and other types of robots kill jobs? Cynthia Brazil argues they won't. She's a pioneer in social robots, ones that focus on human-robot interactions. She invented Jibo, a singing, dancing, tabletop robot. Introducing Jibo, the world's first family robot. Say hi, Jibo. Hi, Jibo. <laughs> Jibo is a personal assistant robot that can photograph, video, entertain and educate you and your family. It can remind you to call your mom on her birthday and even read your children bedtime stories. Let me in or else I'll... Huh. And I'll... Huh. And I'll blow your house in. <laughs> Although some people might find Jibo a bit creepy, the company's crowdfunding campaign showed its strong consumer appeal. Last year, it raised over $2 million from Indiegogo in just eight weeks. This year, it secured $25 million in venture capital. Jibo goes on sale next year. Brazil acknowledges that robots were viewed as job killers historically. You know, when robotics first came onto the market, it was about replacing human labor. Social robotics as a whole field, as a whole research discipline, has been about a very different paradigm. So Jibo is not being designed to replace 
anyone or anything. You know, sometimes people talk about it's going to replace my dog. It's, it's not about that. Jibo is really about supporting the family, supporting those who help care for the family in the case of doctors and nurses. And I think this high-touch, high-tech technology is much better adapted and better able to address those needs. Her robot might one day be a job killer for healthcare workers and personal assistants, but for now, Brazil is on a hiring spree looking for engineers, and she has millions to spend. He's not even just a connected device. He's one of the family. Ultimately, the brave new world of robots envisioned by these pioneers is as inevitable as the relentless advance of tech innovation. Elon Musk is only half joking when he says this. I just hope there's something left for us humans to do. <laughs> and that was Alison Van Diglen in Silicon Valley and Elon Musk ending that report there. Talking about the robots of the future and I don't know about you but I'm all for a few robots to help me around the house do the washing up, the cleaning, the ironing, the tidying up. You get the picture but they'll have to come down in price first sadly. Plenty of us have at times struggled money-wise when faced with budgetary black holes. Do you deal with it alone with a stiff upper lip or would a bit of sympathy help? Financial survival can be a challenge even for the most prudent of us. But if you're suffering, would you want to be getting empathy from your boss? Lucy Kellaway from the Financial Times isn't sure. Most Silicon Valley companies are run by geeks. And one of the drawbacks of being a geek is that dealing with other human beings tends not to be a strong suit. Facebook has found a new way of tackling this problem with a dedicated empathy team whose job is to go round feeling the pain and pleasure of others and translate the experience for the benefit of its engineers. The first result of this emotion awakening is that Facebook users aren't to be called users anymore. Henceforth, they're to be known as people. The company's internal dashboards that used to track daily average users now measure daily average people. This is daft. I'm perfectly happy to be called a user by Facebook. The word implies that I use its product and sums up the relationship with admirable accuracy. To talk of daily average people sounds not just clumsy and weird, but vaguely insulting as it carries the implication that everyone who uses Facebook is pretty mediocre. As well as making the company more human-centred, the empathy team has been dispatched to empathise with advertisers. Again, this is very thoughtful, though it misses the spot by about a mile. If I were an advertiser who was cross that all those expensive ads I'd placed on Facebook had failed to turn into sales, I wouldn't be at all mollified if an employee pitched up to feel my pain. What I would appreciate instead would be an acknowledgement of a problem and an attempt to fix it sharpish. The only proper role for empathy in business is in the office, and even then it's needed only in exceptional circumstances. When we're struck by illness, bereavement, divorce or in periods of miscellaneous emotional upheaval, we may need empathy from our colleagues. The trouble is that most senior business people, not just in Silicon Valley but everywhere on earth, are shockingly bad at performing such a service. Despite all the studies that claim authentic and emotionally intelligent leaders, who are supposed to be the wellsprings of empathy, perform best, experience suggests otherwise. I can think of just one chief executive I know quite well who was really empathetic. He had a very big job, 
but kept it only for a very short time. Because he grieved over all the people he fired and demoted, he found it almost impossible to do tough things and was branded weak and indecisive, almost had a nervous breakdown and was eventually given the push. Given the necessity for toughness at the top, the sensible thing is for leaders to outsource empathy to people who are good at it. Perhaps this is what Facebook is trying to do in having a special empathy team. But it's made another grave mistake in giving it a name. The whole point of empathy is that it's meant to be spontaneous and natural. It's meant to come from the heart. If it's part of your job description, the whole thing was spoilt. If I were a grumpy advertiser, I'd take an even dimmer view of any empathising if it came from a specialised member of an empathy team. Empathy by corporate fiat has nothing empathetic about it. It's about the most cynical concoction ever invented. This is Lucy Kellaway for the BBC World Service. Lucy Kellaway there, not looking for sympathy. Volete ordinare? E tu che pizza vuoi? Un Happy Meal. Tuo figlio non ha dubbi. Happy Meal, sempre a 4 euro. Well, that's a short clip of a McDonald's advert that's caused outrage amongst Italian pizza chefs. It shows a waiter in a pizzeria asking a small boy which pizza he would like. A happy meal, says the boy, before the camera switches to a new shot of the boy with his family this time sat happily in McDonald's. So is it a shameful attack on Italy's cultural traditions, as the true Neapolitan Pizza Association has claimed, or just a bit of tongue-in-cheek marketing by the burger chain? McDonald's released a statement saying, we use our brand in a fun, engaging and responsible way. The firm added that in Italy we have made a number of additions to our menu in the support and celebration of Italian food. Today around 80% of the ingredients we source come from Italian producers and farmers. Well, Sarah Stollotz from the BBC has been talking to staff and customers at a few Italian eateries in London and she started in a traditional trattoria. I'm from Italy and the food there is like something really important for us. Do you feel that this culture is under threat from companies like McDonald's? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The society today is is sick. So you don't think it's funny, the advert? No, 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 no. To be quite frank, I think the culinary heritage, if you really want to call it that, is a bit over the top in Italy. Uh, Most of their food is just literally pasta or pizza or tomato, and they get really protective about that. So it doesn't surprise me that there's been a big outrage If there was anything like that in England or any other country, they'd be like, whatever. Uh, My name is Danilo and I run one of my family delis. You don't think it's true then that lots of little Italian kids would like to go to McDonald's rather than have a pizza? Not really. Really? I don't know. As far as I know, all the McDonald's are in the major cities where it's more touristy, where you do get, obviously, foreigners coming in. So then they will survive to an extent. I'm Roberto, I'm bartender. Yeah, I think it's normal that the tradition have to change, you know. We are in uh, 2015, so it's normal. But back at Sergio's Italian restaurant, tensions are riding high. For me, it's not a problem, because uh, the Italian eat uh, the pizza, the Italian eat uh, in the McDonald's. Uh, OK, it's not the same, but... But why is a problem? For me, it's offensive. Okay, for you, it's offensive. For me, no. <laughs> it's not a good food. McDonald's is not a good food. 
Well, Sarah Stollitz there started a row in an Italian trattoria. I spoke to Massimo Di Pozio, who's head of the True Neapolitan Pizza Association, and he told me why they were so incensed by the ad. I was a little bit ashamed because uh, I think that it's not correct to compare uh, two different products. Uh, And uh, also because I think that the pizza napoletana is one of the main products known uh, abroad about uh, Italian culture and Italian food. Don't you think, though, that taking legal action against McDonald's is a bit drastic? We are uh, exploring this issue. Uh, We are trying to do our best to stop this uh, advertisement because I think it's not correct also to use kids to promote one product. And also we are trying to have a legal issue against this advertisement. But Massimo, some people might think that pizza is just as unhealthy for you than other fast food. But are you saying that proper restaurant Italian pizza is healthier? Yes, we, we, we are sure of that because pizza um, is uh, one of the symbols of a Mediterranean diet. And so also in terms of calories, pizza gives a lot of uh, good things to the people who eat that. Fresh flour, uh, extra virgin olive oil, uh, buffalo mozzarella, sano tomato. So it's a mix of products uh, naturally produced in, uh, in Italy, in, especially in the, in the Campania area. So that's why you're so unhappy about uh, the pizza being compared to a happy meal. Yeah, this is one of the main issue, issue sorry, uh, because it's a bit unfair to compare t- uh, these two products so different in terms of culture, in terms of nutritional facts, in terms of uh, quality of the product. And also we, of course, take care of the tradition. And so we know that Pizza Napolitana is one of the uh, main um, uh, products also abroad that represent the Italian culture. Uh, so it's uh, a sort of attack against uh, this symbol of uh, Italian food. We think that uh, every product of the food should be compared with the same uh, level of product. So in my opinion, McDonald's should compete uh, with the chain of uh, <laughs> hamburger, while, for example, the pizza napoletana could be compared with the other chain of the pizza. And that was Massimo Di Pozio, head of the True Neapolitan Pizza Association, extolling the virtues of Italian food. You've been listening to World Business Report from the BBC World Service, from all of us here. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. You've been listening to World Business Report from the BBC World Service. For more news and analysis, download Business Matters, our daily hour-long mix of current affairs and debate, published at breakfast time in Asia and Europe. We debate key trends in the worlds of work, politics, technology and the environment. Find it at bbc.com forward slash podcasts. You can also follow us and get our latest audio at twitter.com forward slash bbcworldbiz and talk to us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash bbcbusiness.